<clears throat> All right. Uh, so last week we began our consideration of the new covenant in Christ's blood. Uh, we left off in the midst of our discussion on the components of the covenant and particularly the conditions of the covenant. We saw that unlike the other divine covenants in scripture, the new covenant is strictly a covenant of grace as it pertains to its members. We also talked about it is a covenant of works for our mediator. Um, Christ does the work, so it's not there's not works involved, but as it pertains to us, it's a strictly a covenant of grace. Uh, the one condition that is placed upon us, that being faith in Christ, is itself supplied by God along with the blessings of the covenant. Uh, thus, the new covenant is unbreakable because our triune God does all the work to secure all the benefits of this covenant. On the basis of these facts, we equate the new covenant with the covenant of grace. Whereas in other systems, and I am thinking particularly of Presbyterianism, um, whereas in systems like that, uh, the new covenant is seen as an administration of the covenant of grace. We see it as not just a mere administration. They are one and the same. They are the, the covenant of grace is the new covenant. The new covenant is the covenant of grace. Okay. The uh, Presbyterian or Westminster model, if you would rather stick to confessions. Um, the Westminster model says that we have one administration prior to Christ. So the Old Testament is an administration of the covenant of grace. We have another administration. The coming of Christ is the new covenant. We are uh, denying that understanding and rather saying that no, the new covenant is something altogether different, and it alone is the covenant of grace. Um, so before we jump back in with the covenant blessings, because that's what we're going to be looking at our entire time tonight, is the covenant blessings. Uh, I want us to look back again at sections 2 and 3 in chapter 7, just to remind you of where we're at. <clears throat> So, um, picking up in section 2, chapter 7, it says, Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. In this covenant, he freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. On their part, he requires faith in him that they may be saved, and promises to give his Holy Spirit to all who are who are ordained to eternal life to make them willing and able to believe. So he requires faith. He also grants the faith that he requires. And then in section three, it says, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and Son concerning the redemption of the elect. 
Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. <clears throat> so last week we looked at parties of the covenant, which is God and the elect alone. It's an exclusive covenant. It's only made to the elect, not all of humanity. Um, <clears throat> and we looked at the fact that it, in fact, is a gracious covenant and not a law covenant as all of the covenants of the Old Testament era. So now we come to the covenant blessings. <clears throat> uh, I, do, I do want to go ahead and tell you, this is going to be, uh, even though it's going to seem like probably it's taking a long time to get through it, um, this is going to be a summarized covering of the covenant blessings because um, these will be covered in greater detail in future chapters of the confession. As we go through these, we will follow the order of the confession, which you can see by looking ahead to chapters 10 through 18. Yes, the covenant blessings have their own chapters within the confession. And if you realize that it's chapters 10 through 18, that takes up a very significant chunk of a confession that has roughly 30 chapters in it. So this is a, a big deal. So bear with me. We're, it is going to be a summarized uh, covering of it, but same time, I do want to really and truly cover it. So the first blessing of the covenant of grace is regeneration. Now, if you're following along at the other chapters, there's not a chapter called regeneration, but look at chapter 10. Okay. If you're wanting to see where that's going to be covered, look at chapter 10. Sam Renahan defines this blessing of the new covenant. Quote, Regeneration is the birth of a child of God, the birth of the offspring of Christ, the birth of an inheritor of the new creation. It is the transfer of a member of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. It is a movement from Adam to Christ. It is an escape from the covenant of works and an implementation in the or an implantation, if I can say my words correctly, in the covenant of grace. It is the beginning of experiential blessings in the covenant. It is the application of new creation life to a sinner and uh, an initial deposit of glory and holiness that will grow from that point onward. End quote. Or simply put, regeneration is to be born again or even more properly, born from above. Um, so we're going to look at a few passages on the doctrine of regeneration. So first, let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. And while you're turning there, I'm not going to turn there again and read this, but I'll also mention the passage that I've spoke on so many times in regards to the new covenant, and that is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Because regeneration, though the word is not present, the concept is. 
Um, this is uh, mentioned with the writing of the law on the heart in that passage. Um, so I'm not going to turn there again, but I did want to mention it while you're flipping to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 28. <clears throat> All right, um, and this is uh, God who is speaking in this passage. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. <clears throat> you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So it gives us a new heart. That's, uh, that's an, another way of considering regeneration. We are renewed. We are made, quite literally, a new creation. Um, okay, John chapter 3. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> this is a conversation that Jesus is having with a uh, Pharisee. So, I'll give you another answer. All right. Uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or an alternative translation is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now Nicodemus knew that's not what Jesus was saying. Okay? Nicodemus is not an idiot. All right. um, what he's doing there is he's pressing the point to the absurd. I know you don't mean this, so what do you mean is what's going on there. So Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, something to several things that we could consider. Summarize. Something to consider here in this passage, okay? We're talking about birth, 
All right. And then in verse six there, it says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Each one of us in our bodies, we were born from our mother. Yes, this is flesh. Did anybody in this room choose to be born? Of course not. You were a baby. You had no say so in the matter. Nevertheless, you were. Okay, the same, the same way that we are born of the flesh. And we don't just choose to do this. We are born of the spirit. We've received the new heart that Ezekiel talked about, um, that Jeremiah talked about. We are born from above. This is a, a spiritual birth. So it says, that which is born flesh is flesh. This is flesh, but the spirit is changed. So it's not something that we, it's not a birth we can physically see. But we can see its fruits. We'll get into that later. Um, verse 8 <clears throat> Um, is essentially saying um, the Holy Spirit is the one that's doing this. Okay? We're born of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates or rebirths us or borns us again or borns us from above or however you want to say it. Um, the point is, this is God's work. We're born of God. That's what we're getting to. Okay? <clears throat> All right, uh, another passage uh, in John's gospel, or it's a single verse actually, but John chapter 6, verse 63, again, this is Jesus who is speaking. John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. Flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So what we see there is God is the one who gave us life according to the flesh. Likewise, God is the one who gives us life according to the Spirit. We don't cooperate with him in any way to do that. The, uh, the text actually says explicitly the flesh is no help at all. None. Um, so whereas probably a majority of uh, professing Christians will say that, uh, yes, grace is necessary and uh, yes, we cannot be saved without God's grace. Um, God must do a gracious act for us to be saved. Nevertheless, um, they would say that we must cooperate with that grace such that God and us save ourselves. And what I'm wanting you to see here is, first of all, that is profoundly unbiblical. It's false and it is a gross misunderstanding of what regeneration is. We don't choose to be born again any more than we choose to be born. Okay, uh, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Oh, go ahead. <clears throat> Verse 
So, um, correct me if I'm wrong. I think he's referencing verse 44 to John 6, verse 44. So, I'm, again, this is Jesus as part of the same uh, talk, conversation um, that verse 63 is in. Uh, so, I'm going to go back and read it just so everybody will know. So, again, this is Jesus speaking. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay, I'm going to stop there. That's not the whole verse, but I'm going to stop there. Um what the opposing view says, the, the, the cooperation view, the semi-Pelagian view. No, no, I know you're not saying that. I'm saying what, what somebody who does hold to semi-Pelagianism would say is that um, <clears throat> what's going on here is that the Father draws, but then by our free will, we must make the correct decision, okay? But here's the problem with that. <clears throat> Read the rest of the verse. He says, and I will raise him up on the last day. So those who are drawn are raised up on the last day, okay? In that verse, you have the Father doing the drawing, the Son doing the raising. What do we do? We receive it. That's it. Nothing else. We are not active in that equation at all. So um, I do agree with what you're saying. Certainly, um, Jesus here is saying there's a drawing. There is. Um, but the thing is, the drawing... Results in, yes, but the drawing results in raising up on the last day. So it's a saving drawing that's being referenced here. You agree? <clears throat> so the idea would be that those that are being mentioned in verse 44 are the elect. Because those who are drawn in verse 44 are also the same people that Jesus raises on the last day. <clears throat> oh, no, no. I, I agree. There's a process before we get to that point. But what I'm saying is those are the same people. So on the last day, we'll be together in heaven. Um, we both experience that drawing. Because I agree. I also experienced a drawing, and it wasn't just a a moment. Right. And it was uh, it was over a period of time. It, it, I was speaking for myself. It was over a period of time. It was not just a flash in the pan. It was not, it was not a, a, a Paul on the road to Damascus situation. Um, now, God can do that. He did do that. But that's not what he did with me. 
It sounds like that's not what he did with Ken. That's right. Um, no, I, I can I have a similar testimony in, in the sense of I was at a certain place, uh, raised in a Christian home, and had and I'm not like laying blame to my parents by saying this because I so I don't want that to be misconstrued, but I had several misunderstandings about what truth was. Um, I had uh, issues with thinking that salvation was I had to believe hard enough, and if I still had sin in my life, I wasn't believing hard enough, and there were certainly some other doctrinal issues involved, um, but over time, God corrected all of that thinking, and, um, and within that process, he saved me. So I, I certainly agree. There, there is a drawing, and it's a real drawing. Thank God. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay, our next passage is going to be Second uh, Corinthians chapter three, and um, we're going to be looking at verses one through six. So again, we're considering regeneration, the the birth from above, or what it means to be born again. Actually, I didn't put this in my notes, but while you're uh, flipping, uh, this is going to be free as well. Um, I hear this phrase thrown around a lot, born again Christian. Um, there's not any other kind of Christian. So I just want to clarify if anybody ever hears that. I think what is meant by that is evangelical Christian. Um, and even that's kind of a vague term. But uh, to say born again Christian is to like is basically to say you know a Christian Christian, you know. So anyway, just a thought. Second um, Corinthians chapter three verses one through six. It says, "Are we beginning to command our or uh, commend ourselves again?" Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? 
you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, here we go, written on hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who, may, uh, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. So we see that's directly tied to the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. The letter kills, the spirit gives life. I hope you're seeing this pattern. The Spirit gives life. keeps being repeated. <clears throat> Finally, I'm sure that there are other passages we could consult, but I'm just going to do this one more, and then uh, we'll move on to something else, unless somebody has something else they want to talk about on this point. Um, but Ephesians chapter 2, well-known passage. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Yeah, I'm going to Ephesians. <clears throat> How can you not go to Ephesians talking about Really, all of these blessings. Um, but, and I will go ahead and tell you, uh, some of the other blessings of the covenant, we're about to read about them too. Um, but particularly, I just want us to hone in on regeneration for now. So, Ephesians chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> all right. It says, and you, he's talking to the Ephesian church, okay? This is the body of believers. This is new covenant members he's talking to, okay? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. He's talking to the church. He says, you were dead in your sins, in your trespasses. You were by your very nature children of wrath. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Throughout that entire passage, we're dead in sins and trespasses. God is the one who gives life. God is the one who grants us the faith that joins us to Jesus. 
It is the gift of God. It is explicitly said not a result of works. Because otherwise we could boast. We'd have something to boast about. But it says we have no room for boasting. And then even when it talks about the good works we do, it says we are his workmanship. We are created by him in Christ Jesus for the purpose of the good works. But even then it says that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this is from start to finish the work of God, the regenerating work of God. All right, any thoughts or comments or anything like that before we move on to the next blessing? <clears throat> All right, take that as a no. Uh, the next blessing of the new covenant, justification. When considering this blessing of the covenant of grace, we must first consider this question. Justified in what way? According to the catechism of the Catholic, not ceding that term to them, by the way, but the Catholic Church, quote, justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. Justification detaches man from sin, which contradicts the love of God and purifies his heart of sin, end quote. That's the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church and the doctrine of justification in their own words. Here's the problem with those definitions is that there's actually two definitions taken from two different questions. Here's the problem with those definitions. They conflate several of the blessings in the New Covenant into one category called justification. Yes, everything described in that definition is a blessing of the New Covenant. That's true. But not everything described in that definition matches the biblical definition of specifically justification. Okay? So do understand, yes, everything described in that is a blessing of the new covenant. Not everything described there is justification. Now, this is not just a technical theological point. This is the difference between heaven and hell. That is how important this distinction is. So that's why I'm going to spend probably the rest of our time talking about this. <clears throat> the biblical doctrine of justification is something that is also known as forensic justification. Okay? The Catholics. Catholics. Um, they have their doctrine of justification. We Christians have our doctrine of justification. So the modifier there, the forensic part, is just trying to differentiate between their view and our view. And there are other views. I don't want to make it out like you have this and this and that's it. There's actually other views of justification, but these are the two major ones that I think we need to consider. According to Webster's Dictionary, the term forensic is defined as belonging to, used in, or suitable to courts of judicature or to public discussion and debate. So, you can know from the outset that we are talking about a legal ruling when we talk about forensic justification. Okay? It's a ruling 
just uh, in a court justified or not guilty or even better righteous <clears throat> chapter 11 of our confession explains the doctrine in this way quote those god effectually calls he also freely justifies he does this not by infusing righteousness into them that is a direct shot at roman catholicism Roman Catholicism says he infuses the grace of justification into the heart and we must cooperate with that justifying faith and if we cooperate with it to, to the right extent and we can go straight to heaven if we still have some venial sins that are uh, holding us down so to speak we go to purgatory when we die because we have to make atonement that should bother you what I just said we have to make atonement for our venial sins our temporal sins Okay, and then we can be fit to go to heaven after we've done that. If we have received this grace of justification into our hearts and we don't cooperate it to the point of committing mortal sin and we don't uh, get that justifying grace back by going through, the, uh, uh, through penance, then we go to hell. So <clears throat> I just want to make it clear this is a direct shot at the Roman Catholic Church. Not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. He does this for Christ's sake alone and not for anything produced in them or done by them. He does not impute faith itself, the act of believing, or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. Instead, he imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. This faith is not self-generated. It is the gift of God, end quote. That's what our confession says about justification. In other words, what we see is what's called a double imputation or a, a double accounting. To impute it means to account it to. Okay? Christ gets our sin. Our sin is imputed or accounted to him. And the punishment it deserves is given to him on his cross. And we get his righteousness. It is accounted to us. And we get the reward that his righteousness deserves. Eternal life. I want us to look at a few passages on this doctrine of justification. Um, first, let's look at Isaiah 53. <clears throat> and uh, we're just going to read the entire chapter. It's only 12 verses, so it's not a very long chapter. Um, often called the suffering servant. There's a chapter on the suffering servant. <clears throat> All right, so I'm picking up in verse 1. We're reading the entire chapter, Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. 
he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. <clears throat> By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's what that entire chapter is about. The double imputation. Justification. Free justification of sinners. Because Jesus took away our sin. Not only that, gave us his righteousness. But that's just the first passage. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> and um, we are going to pick up in verse 21 in Romans chapter 3. We are going to read all the way through chapter 4, verse 8. So, not stopping with the chapter break. So... Uh, again, Romans chapter 3, picking up in verse 21, and then we're going to read all the way through um, chapter 4, verse 8. And uh, you can hold your place in Romans. We are going to go somewhere else after this, but our final passage on this is going to be in Romans as well. If you just want to stick a bookmark there, or your finger, or whatever you do to hold your place. All right, picking up in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Actually, I'm going to back up. I'm going to start at verse 20. It says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short, of the glory of God and are justified by his grace 
as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. In other words, a propitiation in the idea is a satisfaction of the wrath, rightly deserved wrath, mind you. It's not arbitrary. This wrath was merited. It's a satisfaction of that wrath by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law? Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted or imputed to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted or imputed as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. <clears throat> um, all right, next passage is going to be Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. This is a single verse. Um, I highly recommend you memorize this verse. I, I really feel like this verse is one of the best ones if you have to give an elevator speech to give the gospel to somebody. Really quick, really succinct, but it's got uh, pretty much everything in it. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. All right. It says, for our sake, he, referring to God the Father, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin away, and he gives us his righteousness. And this is God's doing. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 2. Verses 21 through 25. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2, 
verses 21 through 25. All right, it says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This echoes Isaiah 53. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And one final passage on uh, on this point, Romans chapter eight. <clears throat> we'll be picking up with verse twenty eight and read through the end of the chapter, verse thirty nine. Romans chapter eight, starting in verse twenty eight. says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also what? Justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who is that that can't be separated? The elect. And who are the elect? The justified ones. <clears throat> in summary... R.C. Sproul defines forensic justification as the, quote, means we are declared righteous by God in a legal sense. The ground of this legal declaration is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account, end quote. 
in an agreement with him. Louis Burkhoff states, quote, Justification is a judicial act of God in which he declares on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that all the claims of the law are satisfied with respect to the sinner, end quote. Justification is God's legal declaration that a sinner is righteous in his sight. Justification itself does not inherently change the sinner. The first thing we talked about, regeneration does inherently change the sinner. Justification does not inherently change the sinner. This is why Martin Luther described justified sinners as semel justus et pector, which is Latin for, at the same time, just and sinner. Legally, we are just because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to our accounts and our sin has been imputed to him and punished. Not just imputed, but punished on his cross. Inherently, we remain as sinners at the moment of our justification because we are not glorified yet, right? We still struggle with sin in this life. Sam Waldron explains, quote, Justification is not a change in us. It is a verdict about us, end quote. <clears throat> However, justification is not the only blessing of the new covenant, so we have many more to go. Um, yes, I think I can actually squeeze this one in. Uh, the next one, this one's a little bit more quick. Um, the next one is the blessing of adoption. Sam Renahan rightly states, quote, The people of the new covenant, the people of Christ, are the children of God. They are born from above and constitute a new humanity and a new and last Adam. They are the family of God, born of the Spirit. Regeneration is the birth of a child of God, but the fullness of adoption is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of adoption, by which the children of God enjoy all the benefits of divine paternity. Apart from union with Christ and receiving his benefits, there is no adoption because, there, uh, because this is a blessing of Christ's covenant. Adoption is therefore limited to the people of the new covenant and the new covenant alone. We're going to look at the passages on this and then we'll close right there. Um, I'll bring justification back up because we need to talk about it in uh, juxtaposition to sanctification, which is what Roman Catholic doctrine confuses it with primarily. But um, we'll save that for next week. So on the... on. The doctrine of adoption. Um, first, let's go to John chapter 1 and um, verses 12 through 13. <clears throat> John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Um, but to all who did receive him, him being Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the right. It's a, it's a legal, also a legal declaration. The right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
So we got adoption and regeneration snuck in there together. Um, okay, now flip back to Romans chapter 8. Not the exact same part of Romans chapter 8, but Romans chapter 8. This is going to be verses 14 through 17. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, which is another way of saying Daddy, Papa. It's an intimate, fatherly title. Okay, This is not an informal, My Father. It is daddy. And the, the image there is of, a, of an infant crying out for their father. So we very much are crying out in a helpless way to our father <coughs> by spirit of adoption. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Um, next passage is going to be Galatians chapter four. I'm going to be looking at uh, verses four through seven. So uh, again, Galatians chapter four. Verses 4 through 7. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And then one final passage on uh, the blessing of adoption. 1 John chapter 3. <clears throat> verses 1 through 3. So again, 1 John chapter 3. Verses 1 through 3. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. All right. That's where we're going to leave off. Any concluding comments or objections? or Don't throw fruit, though. I'm not going to do that. Hey, I filled those, man. All right. If not, then we'll close with prayer. Father, we again thank you for the blessing that is the new covenant.
Um, we thank you for these blessings that flow from the new covenant that we've already discussed tonight. We thank you for the ones that we hope to discuss um, next week and possibly in weeks to come. Um, most of all, we thank you for Jesus and not just the benefits we derive from him, but just Jesus in his person. And I pray that you would help us to live our lives for him and help us to look more like him, love like him. I pray all this in his holy name.